On today's Keto Culture podcast, our guest is John Nelson. John and I are going to look into some of the legendary and not so legendary cultures that he has been a part of over his career. We're going to look at the importance of leadership setting the tone and the importance of boundaries and standard operating procedures and what the role they play in a company. So without any more delay, let's get to the great podcast today. Let's go. Welcome to the Key to Culture podcast, a show that explores the sometimes unseen forces that animate, connect, and unleash thriving companies and teams. You're listening to the Key to Culture podcast, exploring vital energy and life force at work with Tom Kelly. Okay, on this week's Key to Culture podcast, I'd like to warmly welcome a good friend of mine, John Nelson. John, welcome. Thanks, Tom. Pleasure to be here with you. Awesome. Yeah, I brought John on as a guest because his background is pretty amazing. He's been on some uh, legendary teams, and we want to get some feedback from him about what is it about these teams? What What is it that makes them tick? He started, well, I'll, I'll go back even further than that. John and I we're on a state championship football team together with a legendary coach that we'll go, we'll go into in a little bit because I, I think that he had aspects to him that we've taken in our lives since that are just all-timers. We, we talked a little before the show about his time in the fraternity, and then he went into the Marine Corps, as I did, and he stayed and became a pilot and was part of that legendary force and then got out and joined United Airlines as a pilot and was part of that culture, and now is in, has been for years in the financial uh, space. He's the VP of Ameriprise Financial, and so that's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, just great to have you, John, and uh, you see, what, what's the surfboard doing there? Do you have plans? Yeah, yeah, well, I, I learned to surf in California when I was uh, stationed out there in the Marine Corps, and, and now the only surf we get is during the winter's mostly around here on the East Coast, you know, hurricane season and, and winter storms. We have one today, as a matter of fact. And so tomorrow morning, 3 a.m., heading out, should be about eight feet, I think. Yeah, yeah. And we could even talk about the culture of all the guys that do that. Like, were you the only one? It's definitely a culture. You know, everybody knows the, the California culture, you know, the hot smoking, kind of dopey kind of surfer, blonde surfer kid. But, you know, around here, East Coast, it's a little different. It's, it's, uh, you know, uh, all, all types, but a, a lot of contractors. I hear a lot of cursing out there in the water. It's, it's, and a lot of, there's actually a lot of fighting that goes on out there. So it's, it's uh, much different here on the East Coast. I bet there's books about like the unsaid culture of surfing. Like when you get out there and you're just like little looks tell yeah. volumes, you know, you, you, you can give a guy complete directions by like a little look. There's a language, there's a, there's a, there, there's all that. Crazy. Good. So um, let's talk first about what do you think is one of the key things that establishes a culture? The ones that you joined were already in place when you got there. So what, from what you experienced, what set the tone for those? Sure. Well, you just said it. It, it, was, uh, it was tone. It was tone for sure. I'll start with the Marine Corps just because that's a well-known one. You know, history of an organization sets the tone to a large extent. Right. And, you know, indoctrination into that history is going to sort of tell you 
a little bit about beliefs and expectations and uh, things of that nature. And Marine Corps obviously has a very long, uh, very esteemed history of discipline, of uh, success, of uh, camaraderie, and of excellence. And all those things were uh, apparent from the moment I arrived, from day one. And you would agree, I think, that the tone was very clear what is acceptable, what is unacceptable from day one. Yep, yep. And up to and including, like, share how we got in. Like, how do you get into the Marine Corps? Do you send a letter and they accept you? So so the selection process itself is a part of setting that tone. There is uh, a lengthy, lengthy interview process. You're being tested throughout. You're being evaluated throughout. I think one in three probably was accepted at the time I was applying. And then if you go, if you extend that into the flight school, you know, that was a, that was a two year selection process of which maybe a quarter of them actually made it through. So tone was very, and, and, and conversely on, on the, on sort of the more negative side, you, you gave the example of fraternity, the tone there was set from the very first day I arrived. Unfortunately, the, the, that tone was one of complete debauchery, anything goes kind of environment. And, and I found that people who may not have otherwise done so sunk to lower levels that probably even surprised them versus yep. the Marine Corps where, where people rose to levels that certainly surprised them, right? You, you were surprised at the level to which you, you could achieve. You probably didn't even know you could do some of the things you did by sure. the time you left. Sure, sure. And, and you just look around. And it, it was, they, they had, I remember in OCS, they had, you know, we, we, we knew our own history, but they reinforced it in the classrooms at OCS. There was all the Medal of Honor winners with their whole stories on these plaques. So you take a break and you go over and you read about Manila John Bassalone and Dan Daly and stuff, and you, you get goosebumps. Like that, I, I, this is the first time I'm thinking of this, but yeah, the Marine Corps is a goosebump inducing culture. And that, and that, when you get to that point, that's something. And it's also a competitive culture throughout, whether it's high school football that you mentioned, uh, Marine Corps, you know, you're, you're being timed on everything and you, you know, you fall on a certain, at the top of the list or the bottom of the list. And even in, to a certain extent, well, though, to a certain extent, financially as well, in the financial markets, your production level, your sales level, you're, you're absolutely uh, in a competitive environment. It, when I, I'll never forget when I joined uh, the first internship I ever did at Shearson Lehman, a bunch of people started work the month before, the end of the quarter, the boss came out, taped a list to the wall, cut off the bottom of the list, and it was a Friday afternoon. Everybody ran up to see if their name was on the list that fell to the ground, the part that fell to the ground, because if it did, you're, you're out. Right. So the competitive nature of all the the cultures that that I've been in and we've been in and sales and 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 military and sports has been a, a key part of the tone I think that's I never really yeah hadn't thought of that before like especially you you've gravitated totally towards where the score is kept and it's told instantaneously and I mean you went through a period where life and death was part of the evaluation like tell, tell about you you shared your flight school numbers you know john happened to go through the marines and become a pilot right before 
the first Gulf War. So he was involved with both the first and the second Gulf Wars. And what percentage of your flight class? I was in the unusual. Uh, we had a big uh, flight school class come through when I was coming through in 86. And of the 100 candidates that finished uh, today, 50 of them are dead. So half of them. And, uh, you know, fear is a great motivator. And no matter what you're doing. Uh, as another example, I, I, when I left the Marine Corps, I went to United. Very happy at United for, for 10 years. And then United went bankrupt. And I said, you know, I, I, I got to look around for another job that's not so susceptible to furloughs and bankruptcies. And so that's how I got into finance. But I, I was expecting that, you know, you show up on Wall Street and they start handing out the money. I quickly figured out that sales is very much about survival. And I was never better than when I was scared to death that I, that, that I couldn't support my family and I was rapidly going broke. And it made me good at what I do. It took a long time. It was very painful. But I would say that in, in all these competitive environments, uh, fear has been a, a, a great motivator and certainly you know, life and death being an, an important one. And that helps to set the tone again, too, that we were going back to the tone because if, if, the, if the consequences and the gravity of the situation are significant enough, it, it'll, it'll help to set the tone. Plus, you knew you know, that the places you worked were not secret tone set. They, they, it, was, it was obvious. So you're a person who likes the competition. So you went, John and I have, we have a history of competition that goes back all the way to, I think, 10th grade. We have this story where we both played a particular position, like wing back when we were at 10th right. Don't finish another story. Because the, the coach there was a man named Jack Davison. And he was, you know, he graduated second in his class from Princeton. And he just gave up. He didn't do, he could have been a senator or whatever. But he became a history teacher and a football coach. And we got to see the most, some of the most amazing pieces of leadership, in, you know, right off the bat as a, we are 15. And so tell the story, the story of the depth chart. One of the things, again, one more time, I'll talk about Tone. He created an environment, I think, where we could achieve. He was so organized about how he ran the football team that effort was appreciated and it was rewarded. There was uh, you know, maybe four, five, some cases, eight people to a position, 50 people out on a football field, and somehow – during the course of every practice, he moved people up and down the chart, meaning you're, you're, starting, you're the starting wing back or you're the number two guy, or number three or number four. Somehow he noticed and rewarded that effort by moving you up that depth chart just a little bit. And you and I, Tom, used to, you know, we'd struggle in effort and we'd like try and get ahead of each other. And one day I'd be ahead and one day you'd be ahead. And, yeah. But I always knew that if I was slacking a little bit out there, how he noticed with all those people out there, I'd move behind you. Damn, how did I move behind Tom? But I yeah. knew it. it was because I wasn't trying as hard. Or I had a good huh? lunch. I had a really good lunch yeah, that day. Yeah. yeah. Part of uh, his greatness was creating an environment, a fair playing field, kind of cliche, but he created a level playing field where if you were willing to work and you were willing to try, it would be rewarded and you'd be moved up. If you didn't, you'd be moved down because somebody else out there was trying a little bit harder. It's, it was incredible. And so can you imagine like a couple days in a row when we knew that we performed a certain way? Like I, I knew that he 
outplayed me that day in practice as the last two little wingbacks on the depth chart, maybe like seventh and eighth string. And all of a sudden the next day, he's seventh or sixth. And whoa, yes, that, that reflected that meticulous awareness and attention to detail. All that coach needed to do is do that a couple times. And we were, we were lifelong converts to him because, wow. And even we hadn't talked about this, but one of the other things we did was we watched films for hours. And, and he wouldn't mind redoing, reshowing a play, what, 10 times yep. to show something that was done well or something that was done poorly. Yep. And that was something that I also found in, in the military was there's a way to keep people's ego intact, but tell them that there needs to be improvement. In other words, if you create an environment where this is not an insult, but it's a learning opportunity for something that was done really poorly, we're going to show you over and over why. We're not, yeah, you might be a little embarrassed in the, in the film session, but if you knew that it was for the, your betterment, and for the betterment of the team, you took it pretty well. We used to do that in the aviation community too. We would razz each other quite a bit during debriefs and tell somebody how, how badly they did. And it became sort of a, a joking culture. You've seen Top Gun and, that, and the way guys, yeah. you know, Iceman and, and how they go at each other like that. But it's this, this sort of picking at mistakes is also a way of improving you quite a bit as long as the culture is not one of aggressiveness against certain people, but it's, again, a level playing field where, hey, we're pointing out bad that needs to be improved for the benefit of everybody, and, but we're rewarding it by the same thing with, you know, with the stuff that's done right. Yes, the transparency. And in a, in a, in a, in a flight situation, you're, you could be flying next to the guy. Exactly. Like in two weeks, and if, if you let him off late on a mistake, you could be dead, just like the half of the flight. Amazing. That's, that's, a, that's, yeah, you've been in some serious situations that take transparency and that organization. You, what you said just spurred in my mind that, that coach, what he, one of the tenants he, we, we should have, somebody should have wrote a book on all the stuff that <laughs> he did, but um, he, he rewarded the unsung. So if you scored a touchdown, you got in the newspaper and, you know, women wanted to wear your D jacket, your letter jacket at night. He never mentioned that when, once we got into studying and looking at the film. He would give milkshakes to people who did the unsung thing, like the guard who had the most quality blocks that day. And so that guy was beaming with his milkshake. And he was, he was basically celebrated because of that. Or if you, like if you had four touchdowns, no milkshakes because right. you already got rewarded. So, right. but a bunch of- well, and that, brought up, that brought up something else in, in uh, creating a culture. One thing that you and I knew, and we might not have even known this in the very beginning of the season, but it, it came, became to our awareness that even though we would spend an hour in that film room in there, we found out later that he was up many times all night long with that. He may have spent 25 hours with that film. We might've spent an hour he probably, for every hour we spent, he probably spent 25 hours with that same film back yeah. and forth. We wore that thing out. And what does that tell me about my effort? If, if I know that, and he's not even telling me that, but I find out that that's the truth. Yep. Yep. If I know that that's the values and that's the, the effort that he puts in, 
it kind of raises my standard a little bit too for myself. Totally. So as you proceeded, we, we talked about something about in dangerous, especially in dangerous places, but in any, in any work or organization, you mentioned standard operating procedures, like, because you're a little bit of a freelancer yourself. And so <laughs> it's, yeah, I think it's almost like you've, you've put yourself in situations where there's pretty clear operating procedures. Standard operating procedures to me have, have been sort of the baseline for a lot of things. Not only understanding what my job is, because leadership will communicate doesn't mean I understand, right? right. But, but standard operating procedures go a long way in communicating what I'm supposed to be doing, what order I'm supposed to be doing them in, and me understanding what those, those standard operating procedures are. And if you're good at it, within there, you can even have sort of values within those embedded in those standard operating procedures. But I think knowing the expectation, being bought into the expectations of an organization through standard operating procedures is, is, is really critical so that people aren't, they do know. They're, they're not, there's no question about what is expected. Too often, you know, things are a little chaotic without them. Sure, sure. Well, which that's a good segue to as you got out of transition out of United and went into the financial um, space, you worked briefly for Wells Fargo. And share a little about the cautionary tale of standard operating procedures. At the core, I believe, the core of the mission statement for Wells Fargo, whatever it, it may have been, what it was translated by the employee to was arguably, and just, just watch the news, was that the bank comes first. You know, profits of the bank come first. And I think uh, employees were were in my experience what happened was the the firm would would do what it was necessary to be results oriented at 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 any cost at the expense of the employee expense of the customer uh at the expense of uh the staff and advisors you know people are people they 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 want to do i think they often want to do the right thing but in the end they'll do what they have to to keep their job and there were standards that were set, standard operating procedures as well, that were unachievable, were probably not in the customer's best interest, and it led otherwise honorable people to do dishonorable things just to keep their jobs. And that's, that's an awful culture. That's a really difficult culture to, to work, work within. And so you're seeing employees and, and, and advisors and customers, frankly, leaving. They put the carrot in a place where the employee went to get the carrot and signed up these new accounts. And like, you know, if you put the carrot right. in the front door of the jail, <laughs> not good. Yeah, John, I wanted to talk to you also about the idea, some of the stuff we've talked about, but the idea that you have, it just dawned on me, you've, you are a free spirit. Like you, I've known you a long time. I think we met when... We were in sixth grade in the water at down at the beach, and I, and I was like, "Who's this guy?" And uh, we talked, and we became friends. But yeah, he's, he's you know we talked about the surfing at three in the morning and all this. And one of the early stories was John decided he didn't want to play baseball in eleventh grade, so he didn't. 
And then he decided he wanted to play baseball in 12th grade, the day of the first practice or tryouts. So he shows up with no mitt. Who, who shows up with no mitt to baseball practice? Ends up making the team, starting, hitting a home run in the first game, I believe. But um, it's part of his legend. But, uh, yeah, it dawns on me that you are such a free spirit and nobody tells you, nobody puts you in a, a box but you've entered into, you know, your career is, is a checklist of athletic uniforms, military uniform, pilot's uniform, and then the, you know, the, 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 the nice suit that seems like every good financial person has. What's, what's, what's that about? I, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I guess you're right. I, I never really gave that much thought, but. Now that you mention it, somehow I've ended up in, in one form or uniform or another my whole entire life. That must speak to something that I maybe I realize I need to take whatever it is, whatever talents I have. Hopefully, I, it's me being smart enough to realize that I wouldn't thrive in an, in an environment that was too chaotic and too much of a free-for-all something about the structure and the discipline of that that's represented by those uniforms. I must need that because I, it had, there has been a formula for success for me and that, that must be a big part of it. And I never would have probably given it any thought unless you had just mentioned it. Now that you do mention it, I, I, I think about the, the, the military uniform. And I always thought it was so strange why we stand around in, in drill and inspection and, I mean, literally a thread on the uniform and you're, and you're getting chewed out. But when you're actually out there, I mean, you're all muddy and gross. What, what does one have to do with the other? It really doesn't have anything to do with the other, but, but it does. I think the military uniform, when you're in inspection and everything having to be perfectly creased and perfectly everything uh, is much more about the cultural discipline that, that you need when you get out to the field there. In other words, that's great attention to detail well you wore the same uniform pervades almost everything you do afterward or, or you know certainly when you're while you're in but then afterwards too in other words that attention to detail is a trait that becomes part of your your personality right right and and it's a form of conformity where if if your unit had all total conformers that wouldn't be good there's no leadership, there's no juice there. But put a bunch of free-thinking, free-spirited people with, with their own ideas and, their own, and adaptability and put them in a structure, and now you have the best of both because you, you, know, you, you, you have dynamism and structure. I think, of, I think of the samurai, and the samurai were known for, I don't know if you knew this, but they were known for like calligraphy, and amazing flower making or flower like design and all the different stuff like that, as well as being the deadliest fighting force. So maybe that's a little bit what the Marine dress blues, which is almost like peacockish in its grandeur is like, we can do that too. We could do beauty and perfectly precision mission stuff. So there, yeah, I think that it seems like there's a, there's a correlation to, we want 
we want the most well-rounded person we could get who's, who's got a lot of dynamism and we want them to do this. And it creates, it creates something. That's interesting. I never, you bring up the samurai and I, and I, I realize that channeling creativity is important. I mean, people think, for example, that create, there's no creativity in finance. There's the least creative business you could think of would be finance. But actually, the wealthiest client I know is a hedge fund manager or that I have. My, my wealthiest client is a hedge fund manager. And he says, oh, no, finance is one of the most creative things that you can uh, endeavors that you can imagine. Think about the financial crisis, how we got into that. And that was people non-conform, you know, creating products like packaged collateral mortgage obligations, you know, they got sliced and diced and then sold as stocks. And that's what eventually brought, you know, the financial crisis of 2008. So it's interesting that you say that culture has to have a way to, to, to channel all that dynamism, all that creativity, but not stifle it. Yes. To, to manage it to the right place, but not give it up, not, not sacrifice it. it. It totally is. Yeah. With, so deregulation, if it's, if everyone is acting like an automaton, then yeah, we got to deregulate a little. If everyone's freewheeling anyway, deregulate and you go into, you know, danger area. Anarchy, chaos. Yeah. 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 Or there's been military cultures, even like episodes of good military cultures that went off the rails because, you know, that kind of dark creativity took over and they didn't stay within the bounds. So, yeah, it's degrees whole semester right there. So when we're talking about uniforms, what I've always wondered, and, and there's been a lot of discussion about, like, why do financial planners and finance guys wear like why do you, why does everyone what's a what is it about the suit and tie and and the level of suit and the meticulousness is it the same as the marines or what yeah i would say there's there's some of that i i think well two things so there's the thing that it the, the outward thing and the inward thing so so there's the person looking at the person in the suit and i think i owe it to my client to look as professional as i as i possibly can i think you know, they pay me well and, and I owe it to them to have a de- attention to detail to my, to my dress, to my, to my hair style, because I owe it to them. But also from the inside, you know, when I put that suit on, I'm, there's, a, there's a mental shift that happens too. I'm, I'm going to work and I'm rolling my sleeves up and I'm, I, I'm no longer the surfer, you know, that, that's, that's out there kind of freewheeling. There's a mental shift that goes on in my head when I when I don that uniform, right? And what the reasonable expectations are of me, the regulations that are in the industry, the the what what my uh, leadership expects of me, and what the client expects of me. So I think there is a mental shift that goes on there for me when I physically put on the uniform. Right, almost like a combination of a lock that you know you you put the tie and you set, and all of a sudden you are locked in. And yeah, I think when the client also, you know, you don't want your financial guy to live in a tiny little house and be struggling. That's that's no good. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. You know, it wouldn't be good to have your financial advisor who can't manage his own finances. That would be right. great. Right. And, and the and the thing, you know, the, like the um, 
the marriage counselor who's in a bad marriage. Like, what, right. what is that? Don't, I don't, that's not a thing. You know, you need to, you need to have confidence in them by their life, by what you're seeing. And then if a great financial planner didn't dress very well and then didn't get a bunch of clients, who's, who suffers? Him and them. They don't get access. They, they turn them off and they don't get access. So yeah, you're, that's, I, we, let's explore that going forward too, because that's amazing is what, why does a, and I, I bet we could find all kinds of, of instances. Any maverick athlete is the type of person who, you know, you put them on a team and get them channeled and it's the best of both worlds. So I think, I think that's a wrap. I think, uh, this was fantastic. Good going down memory lane with you. Yeah, it's not often you get that kind of career path in one person. It was valuable to me because I, these are some things that I don't realize about myself either until we step back and actually dig in a little bit. You, you kind of uncovered a few things that, that sort of challenged me a little bit, make me realize some certain things about myself as well that I don't take the time to to actually do so it was, it was interesting to explore which is a whole nother exploration is you know in a culture let your freewheeling uh achievers do that don't tack them down don't don't do too much uh navel gazing as they say like just let them do let them do his thing you know <laughs> so anyway thank you so much for being on the podcast um where can they? Where can people find you if they want to get in contact with you? Sure. Yeah, it's it's uh, John Nelson, Ameriprise Financial. Any anywhere on the web you look, to, hopefully you'd find me there. I, I, I think I'm pretty easy to find. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you, and have have a good surf. Thanks, Tom. I enjoyed it. I would tell you tell you to stay safe, but you wouldn't probably wouldn't listen anyway. <laughs> if it is not safe. See you, man. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Key to Culture podcast, sponsored by Quantius, the premier marketing agency for emerging technology. Quantius, smart, fast, curious.